I am Alon Ben-Mir and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Khan Ross, Executive Director of Independent Diplomat, which he founded in 2004. During a 15-year diplomatic career for the United Kingdom, he served as a political officer in the British embassies in Bonn, Oslo and Kabul, and was head of the Middle East Section and Deputy Head of Political Section at the United Kingdom Mission to the United Nations. He has worked on a wide range of issues, including the global environment, terrorism, and the Iraq weapons of mass destruction and sanctions. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. I'd like to know a little bit about what you're doing here. It's very impressive. I mean, I read what, you, what we could get. Sure. Um, well, it's a non-profit called Independent Diplomat, and it's a group of former diplomats and lawyers, international lawyers, who advise and give support to various democratic governments and political groups around the world on diplomatic strategy um, so that they get what they want in diplomatic negotiations. Uh, so we're trying to help people who are legitimate but may be marginalised in some way in diplomatic processes, which are, of course, dominated by the powerful in one way or other. So we're trying to give the people who are more marginalised the tools to be effective in diplomacy. We don't represent them. We're not lobbyists. We're not their advocates. We support them to be their best advocates. Um, so that's what we do here. Mm -hmm. I, I read you say the three areas where you've been involved, Syria is one, mm -hmm. uh, Northern Cyprus is another, Sudan is another, mm -hmm. that is the Sahara well, situation. Well, we do the Frente Polisario of the Western Sahara, which is unknown, forgotten issue where one Arab country is occupying another. We've done that for a long time. Uh, we help today the Democratic Syria opposition, the Syria coalition, as it's known, and we also work with a large coalition of Syrian civil society groups to put their demands into the diplomatic discussion, and in particular their demand for civilian protection for an end to the bombing, which is a, a demand that unites almost every civil society group in, in Syria and is yeah, yeah, powerfully legitimate sure. and yet hardly gets talked about um, when we're talking about ISIS and the future of Assad and dividing the country, nobody ever talks about the most important thing, which is stopping people being killed. Uh, we also help the Marshall Islands, which is a very low-lying Pacific state uh, in the middle of the Pacific on the UN climate change process. We help them build a coalition of what became 100 countries at the Paris uh, Agreement negotiations, um, which was a real success for them and for us. Uh, we help a diaspora group of Tamils get accountability for war crimes in Sri Lanka. We help Somaliland, which is a democratic, legitimate, self-declared state in the north of Somalia, which, because it's peaceful and quiet and never gets talked about, um, and its wish for recognition as a separate state is ignored by an international community that prefers colonial boundaries to the real wishes of the local people. We helped Kosovo before they became independent. We helped South Sudan before they became independent, but stopped helping them after independence when they started uh, abusing the human rights of their own mm -hmm. people. We yeah. will not help people who do that. We have very strict ethical criteria. We helped Croatia join the European Union 
Uh, so we've done a quite a variety of work. So who reach do you reach out to them or they reach out to you? It's or is both, it a combination? It's both and um, often we're introduced to parties. So, uh, uh, you know, last week a UN special envoy who's involved in a negotiation in an African country said, I think these guys would welcome your help. Let me introduce you. And so we have a discussion. Mm-hmm. We tend to have very few clients, as we call them, um, but we do them very thoroughly and often for a very long time. But they don't have to pay. Depends. Um, when they're richer, uh, we do charge commercial fees. Uh-huh. We're allowed to as a non-profit. And that income helps offset the cost of the what you might call the non-profit work because, of course, we help people living in refugee camps and people in some of the poorest countries in the world. Um, so it would be wrong for us to charge those people a lot of money. But we make clear to all of our clients that they are the customer and we're the provider. We do what they want, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. We work for them, which is an unusual thing for a Western NGO. And right. a lot of our clients, when you first say that to them, they're, they're surprised. I know you dealt with the Northern um, Cyprus, you know, with the Turkish yeah. community. And um, what's, your, what's your really view on it? I mean, do they have legitimate claim? That is, if, if there is an effort to have a democratic Cyprus, full-fledged democracy, where the Turks are not, they do not want to go, obviously, by majority rule, mm-hmm. because they're going to fit suit their needs. Mm-hmm. So they want something else. What sort of arrangement? I mean, I talked to former ambassadors to Greece and to Turkey and others on this issue, but what, what sort of an arrangement the Turks will actually accept? Now they have 40,000 troops still in Northern Ireland, yeah, or something along these lines. Well, I think Turkey and the Turkish Cypriots are two very different things. It's a bit like talking about the Serbs in Kosovo and conflating the Serbs in Belgrade with the Serbs in northern Kosovo. It's yeah, but, but the Kurds... Because I don't think that Turkish Cypriots and Turkey have exactly the same interests. But uh, uh, do you think the Turkish Cypriot can really make a decision on their own without Ankara's no, nodding? Of so of that's, that's the whole point. I know, but they're not, they're not the same thing. And I no, think, no, of course. I, I think, uh, I mean, one of the reasons we got involved, and this was some time ago, so my views are not up to date at all, was that the... Turkish Cypriot president at the time said he didn't want to rely on the diplomatic network of Turkey for his information or for his advice about what to do. Uh, For instance, how to deal with the UN, how to deal with other countries that were uh, taking an interest in the issue, which is what we try to do. We give independent advice, you know, according to the wishes of our clients. And he was very clear that, you know, he wanted a, a shared democracy with guarantees for minority rights. You know, certain obviously that meant dealing with historical issues like property rights and stuff like that, which frequently come up in this kind of situation. In the Balkans, it comes up a lot. Um, but he was absolutely committed to a deal. I think what has gone wrong there is obviously you've had leaders in the past who were not committed to a deal, didn't actually want peace. Which part are the Greek Cypriots? Both, both, both at different times. Definitely, of course, in the north for a long time, but also in the south. And the Anand deal was rejected by the South, of course, was rejected by the Greek Cypriots. And that was a real deal. The Northern Cypriots accepted it. So they were not the obstacle to peace at that time. Anyway, that's, you know, I, I think it's a perfectly plausible to have a solution there. I don't think but it's... To what extent, I mean, my understanding that the discovery of gas 
mm-hmm. and the subsequent you know the relationship between Cyprus and Israel might have complicated the solution. Oh, uh, natural resources always complicate. Complicate. So how always. do you how do you I've been thinking about it. How do you reconcile that? That is, Turkey today is, of course, not happy with the closeness, yeah. the relationship between Israel and Cyprus, and certainly yeah. even Israel and Greece, for that matter, which is much closer than ever before. Yeah. And and, and uh, so the discovery of gas mm. and which is excluded, you know, I mean, Turkey will have to buy it. Uh, they have no part in it whatsoever. Mm. Mm. To what extent that complicated the negotiations between the North and the South and Cyprus? I think it complicates things a lot. It certainly complicated oil. Complicated. I mean, I mean, it's complicated from your perspective. In which way it was complicated? Well, it, it increases the stakes. So, yeah. and it, it's usually seen as a zero sum issue, where your gain is my loss, um, which is always problematic in negotiations. Well, because what yeah. you're trying to create in negotiations is a solution where both sides win and that's plausible it's very rarely zero sum i mean to give an example between north and south sudan before uh, independence for south sudan oil was a big issue a big issue because the oil more or less straddles the border and so there was a direct kind of deal done you get this and we'll get that but it was part of a package of deals with concessions and gains on both sides and you know, we felt for a long time that treating it as a package was the only way to get a sustainable deal. But unfortunately, it was often outsiders who would exaggerate the importance of, it, of single issues. So, for instance, there was a group of NGOs who had enormous influence with the U.S. government who emphasized the issue of a disputed territory on the north-south border called Abye and said, unless you fix Abye, nothing else will be mm-hmm. fixed. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like focusing on Jerusalem between Israel and Palestine, you know, which is, as you know better than me, one of the hardest issues to resolve. It's a bit like singling that out. But the moment you put natural resources also on the table, politicians start to get very excited, particularly in poor countries, because oil finds gas discoveries are transformative, uh, including of the personal fortunes of the politicians involved. Yeah, this is true. No, this is true. I mean, just say, you know, you mentioned Jerusalem. Uh, as a matter of fact, I. I always thought the opposite, which is true. <laughs> well, you thought Jerusalem was easy. <laughs> if you were to start with that, think in those terms. Yeah. Where it is the, lar- is the city that has the largest inhabitants of Israelis and Palestinians, backed up to one another, they exist. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of east to west, west to the east, they go back and forth, there's no, absolutely no restriction. Well, I wasn't saying in, it was necessarily the hardest, I was just saying singling it out no, no, and no, saying I'm, you fix that before you fix the anything perception, else. No, but that, the perception. That, to me, is a, yeah. the wrong way of thinking about a negotiation. Yeah. But there is a perception that is a very, very difficult. And I've been saying, you know, as a matter of fact, it is not that difficult because you really can't change much on the ground in terms of the city will have to remain exactly the way it is united. Yeah. My feeling is the simple approach, which is probably the most practical approach, which what is Israelis and Israeli, what is the Palestinians and Palestinians. Yeah. You don't need to recreate a new arrangement. What exists works. Yeah. It works. No, that makes sense. I mean, Israel-Palestine is a classic case where the contours of the final deal have been clear for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, there, there is, however, a whole kind of mediation industrial complex, as one friend of mine calls it, you know, that has conferences and writes papers with endless 
kind of iterations of potential deals on Israel-Palestine, which I think has really confused matters because the basics of the deal have always have been clear for a very long time. You know, and were clear when, during the Oslo process, they were clear with the Madrid agreement, you know, the whole way through. It's it been was clear. clear, except that what's happening, you're absolutely right, what's happening in recent years, of course, getting more complicated because of the Israeli very active um, approach to the West Bank in terms of building new settlement, expanding existing yeah. one. So the, the equation is changing ever Well, that's so right. Settlements have made it harder. Made it much, 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 much harder. harder. But so, even then, the delineaments of the deal are still clear. Yeah. You know, land oh, yeah. for peace, end the occupation of yeah. the large majority of the West Bank and Gaza. You know, do a deal, as you've described, over Jerusalem. Do some deal over the right of return, you know, which, again, that deal was always spoken of in quiet tones what that would mean uh, in other words not the real right of return but some kind of oh no that, I mean even going back to Camp David yeah Arafat himself exactly but that. in those what four sentences that was yeah. the deal yeah. kind of not complicated yeah. you know you don't need a conference to figure that out you just need to as you say get the parties into a position where they walk through the process where they can actually implement it together and that is what was missing after Oslo was a meaningful process of implementation and a lack of international attention to that implementation. Yeah, but the, you know, you're absolutely right. The, the problem is that the leadership, in this particular case, the leadership on both sides yeah. have made things much more difficult yeah. because they refuse to engage the public in a constructive way. Like going back to this issue, that's when the public is in the dark mm. and they don't see prospect for a breakthrough. Mm. When you make significant concession, how do you deliver that? Mm. What do you tell the people? What do the Palestinians tell the public if they keep saying right of return, right of return, right of return, and then they sit down at the negotiating table and give it away? And they're going to settle for a compensation and resettlement. And now they go to the public and say, you know what? We cannot have the right of return. Only few know. can go back. That's the problem. So the Israelis are guilty of the same charging connection with Jerusalem, the same yeah. United City, eternal. We'll never give it up. I know. I know. And so the they're going to go back now to the public and say, actually, well, it's yeah. not going to happen that way. Yeah. So, uh, in my view, right now, let's um, Netanyahu and Abbas leave the political scene. A new leadership come to the fore. You're not going to get make any progress as far as Israeli-Palestinian is uh, concerned. So we have to wait for the departure yeah. of these two old fools. Well, I hope. <laughs> I hope. Yeah. I mean, there's. More plausible that one will depart and not the other, unfortunately, simply because of age. I see, you know, I think the Palestinian leadership has been pretty disastrous because, you know, one of the things we tell our clients here is even in the most difficult political circumstance, there are always things you can do. Always. You know, passively accepting the situation that has been given to you by your occupier or even by the geopolitical, you know, situation where the geopolitics are against you and everybody supports your occupier or the country that's oppressing you or whatever, even then there are things you can do. There are always things you can do to change the narrative internationally, to propose specific things, to take specific actions. And that's to me where the Fatah leadership failed so badly, is that it didn't do anything. They just stopped doing anything. And I think also they betrayed their own people inside the occupied territories who wanted to do something. You know, for instance, the movement of nonviolence in 
the West Bank in particular, that to me had a, a lot of credibility and plausibility as a resistance movement that could change the dynamic of occupation. And the leadership did nothing to help yeah. that. In, fa in yeah. fact, they yeah. you know, rejected it. And their own self-interest becomes manifest. And of course, there is a disunity within the Palestinians themselves. That's another big problem. I mean, you know, they don't have a so-called unity government never really existed in, in real people always have disunity I, I reject it's this you know people always said this about Syria you know yeah. uh, Lakhdar Brahimi who was the UN special envoy on Syria early on after the revolution as things were breaking down into civil war he said oh why don't the rebel groups why don't the, the democratic groups unite like we did in Algeria the FLN we were a united mm -hmm. movement and I said they're never going to unite that's a complete impossibility because they have different interests, they're from different groups in the country, they're not going to unite. You've got to get used to the reality. And to say, oh, they need to unite, therefore we can't do a deal, is to adhere oneself too tightly to a very, old, what in my view is a very old-fashioned view of mediation and peacemaking, which is you put two leaders together and they hash out a deal and then they go out and sell it to their people, all done well, in a, a private yeah. room, you know, usually with some beneficent white man as the arbiter between them. And I don't think that model is at all appropriate for the large majority of the conflicts that we're trying to deal with today. And yet it's the model that the UN well, really Syria. sticks to. I think it's even much more difficult than Syria. I mean, you but every conflict. Are yeah. you you name me a conflict? No, no, I know they are all extremely difficult. But I think because you've been involved in Syria, I'd like to dwell on that a little bit. I personally, uh, sitting here right now, I don't think there is a practical solution to bring put Syria back together as a single unit. Hmm. I don't see how that's going to happen. Mm. What are going to what sort of mechanism you're going to have to get to create any kind of representative government? And let's talk about democracy right now. Mm. Representative government, mm. given the factionalism within the country itself, given the fact that the Sunnis are a majority, mm. uh, given the fact that the Kurds are no longer interested in joining, becoming really part and parcel of any central government because mm -hmm. they, were, they were treated. So the work that we've been talking about in terms of trying to help the rebels and mm. get their act together. Um, That's not what I do. We don't try to get them get their act together. <laughs> no, not you. I mean, this I would is, never put it in those terms. This is what they've you know. been trying to do now. I mean, the United States tried, yeah. the Turks are trying. The Turks are not trying. Let's get clear uh, <laughs> about the Turks are not trying to unite the rebels. That's not their policy. The Turks have one priority in Syria, and you know what that is. Yes, yes. Which is yes. to stop the Kurds. And it's got damn all to do with supporting the rebels or supporting the re revolution. It's an entirely self-interested policy that they're pursuing. I, no, I agree with you. I mean, the Personally, I think the Syrians themselves are quite capable of coming to a deal. It's the rest of us who are a problem. It's the Russians, the Iranians, but the how Turks, do you, how the do Saudis you see, who are the problem. How do you see that happening in Syria? When you say they are the Syrians themselves, who are the well, Syrians themselves? Well, number one, the Syrians themselves want an end to war. I guarantee you that 99.9% .9 of Syrians this want is an end to war. And they really are desperate for an end to war. That's I what agree. every single Syrian says. Yeah if you ever bother to talk to them, they all say the same thing. Okay. And that is a huge motive for peace. And a lot of them are saying, we will settle for anything as long as it brings the war to an end. Now, that doesn't mean all the armed groups will adhere to it, but it does mean you have an enormous impetus for a deal to be done, which 
internationally you don't see at all. I don't think the Russians, you know, they probably want a deal, but not with that kind of urgency. Look, the Americans have disengaged completely under Obama. What Trump will do, I don't know. But the, point the Saudis and the Iranians are quite happy to keep fighting, you know, as long as they the don't point. make concessions that's to each point. other. You leave it to Syrians, I think a plausible transitional deal with some kind of, you know, guarantees for the remnants of the regime, that is a plausible thing. A highly federalized model, that is what the Kurds have proposed. The Kurds have not said they want to destroy Syria. They have not said they want a separate state, despite no, what no, lots of journalists... No, no, they didn't say separate state, but they want to have some kind of... An, uh, good for them. Autonomous I mean, route yeah, of, of you? I mean, I wouldn't want Assad in charge of no, my... No, 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 of course I've been to Rojava yeah. in northeast uh, Syria, and it's a self-governing entity that is embraces all races and all religions, and it's a very impressive, beautiful thing. If the rest of Syria could be governed like that, I think we'd all be very happy. But the point, you know, yes, I think I agree with you, the Syrians themselves would like absolutely to end the conflict, to end the war, to, to end the killing. But you have now three other players outside, you have Iran, Russia and Turkey. And Saudi Arabia, and let's not forget them, yeah, and America. Yeah. Let's not forget them either. But this and is I, true. And ISIS. But those who are, have much, even greater stake is Iran, Turkey, and, and Russia, because Russia wants to maintain its influence and presence in Syria under any circumstances. So mm -hmm. do the Iranians. And Turkey, for exactly the reason you mentioned, and some. Mm -hmm. That's also Syria as a neighbor. They, they want to have some kind of stability. They don't want the Kurds to go on their own. Mm -hmm. So they have their own agenda. So how do you reconcile this issue? This is what we have. We've been, I've been struggling with. How do you reconcile? How do you get to Iran? Turkey and Russia, I mean, they are talking, but I don't think that's going to lead to any kind of permanent solution because they want to make sure that their interest is served at the expense of Syrian people. I mean, they couldn't probably care less. That's I, how I, I, see I personally it. don't think a durable peace is possible until the Assad regime feels that's sufficient thing. pain that it is forced to do a meaningful deal to end its rule and transition to some other dispensation. Until that happens, there will not be peace. Which, which and that means that the Assad regime should feel military pain. And we, in the Syria opposition coalition, have long argued that there needs to be limited intervention by the West, by the US, to increase the price of Assad continuing to kill his own civilians in large, uh, large numbers well, to force him to stop. And once you force him to stop, then you put him in a position where he's forced to negotiate. Clearly, they don't want to negotiate a handover of power at the moment. And that, that means that an end to the war, the fundamental war, and as you know, there are many wars going on there, the fundamental war between uh, Assad and his political opponents, those who want democracy, um, and hundreds of armed groups, that war will not stop. No, that's it. That's the whole thing. You know, you need to change the dynamics. And I think the Obama administration has made terrible mistakes. I've been advocating all along that to stop Assad, to teach him a lesson, at a minimum, well, other than the tragic mistake that Obama has done by not, by not adhering to the so-called red line and doing absolutely nothing about yeah. it, could have, uh, for years, last couple of years, you know, destroyed runways, mm. destroy hangars. That's what we think. Should have done that a long time yeah. ago, with a very limited, very little no, collateral that's damage. Think. That's what we think. He doesn't need... 
thousands of troops and it doesn't need a no-fly no, zone. exactly that. You just send in a few standoff weapons to That's destroy right. things that matter That's to you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then he would be able to That's ground. That's what we mean by a military price. You yeah. start yeah. increasing the military price. Yeah. I have advanced pace. these notions for the last two or three years, pleading with the State Department, pleading, you know, you've got to do something like this. Yeah. But so absolutely not available. And I don't well, think I, I, I think the State Department and DOD were long... I think had long understood that argument and were pretty sympathetic to it. The problem was the White House. Yeah. You know, Obama supporters don't want to hear this, but he was the problem. That's right. You know, there were three people who stood in the way of greater intervention by the US. And greater intervention that doesn't frankly look a lot different from US into the US military presence today, because the US is present militarily. It's supporting the SDF forces in the east, it also has aircraft overhead in Syria. There already is a US presence. It's not like there isn't intervention already. It's just to attack the Assad regime in a significant way. But uh, in my view, at zero military risk for the US. But even now, you know, the, the Trump administration, you know, they're thinking that we have to eradicate ISIS, well, which is fine, that needs to be done. Uh, but there is no talk about what to do with Assad. And I think it's not too late to teach Assad a lesson by this administration. That is pretty much following what I just said earlier. Mm. Do something about it. Send a clear message to Assad that he cannot continue to destroy, you know, to, to bomb his people to smithereen. This is like, it's got to be stopped. I'm not sure it's too late to send that kind of message. But then the question is the relationship between Russia and, I should say more not Russia and the US, but Putin and, and Trump. Yeah, we haven't well, been clearly there's a lot of grounds for suspicion yeah. Yeah. as to what underlies that relationship. That's the problem there now. We Syria may, yeah. may be where we see the results. Yeah. I don't know. It's too early to tell. There isn't a material evidence yet that whatever Trump's relationship with Russia has actually yet affected American foreign policy in a significant way. No, not that yet. hasn't yet happened. It's too the early. Two key, well, the two key <laughs> ke tests are, of course, Ukraine is one, and the other is Syria. I mean, there are lots of other second-order issues, but those are the two big ones. Right, right. So what are you involved in? What, what kind of projects currently are you involved, uh, if I may ask? Well, Syria, as we've uh -huh. discussed, climate change, um, we're keeping together the High Ambition Coalition that we put together uh, for Paris to pursue better carbon and greenhouse gas outcomes in multiple diplomatic forums now. So. We engaged that coalition in the Montreal Protocol revision, mm -hmm. which is about HFCs and CFCs, which are very serious, uh, very potent greenhouse gases, and mobilized the coalition to meet and coordinate their diplomacy in that forum. And now, of course, there's a, you know, a big question mark over Paris itself. I personally see the main goal right now is to preserve Paris and to preserve the momentum that we got. Are you trying to, do you have any contact with the current administration? I mean, obviously they are not so keen on the Paris Declaration, they're not so keen on, on this whole issue in the environmental, you know. You it's, it's very early days. I mean, uh, Tillerson has only just been confirmed. Their actual posture on Paris is not yet clear. Everybody's uh -huh. assuming they will leave it. We don't actually know that uh -huh. yet. Uh, we don't deal directly with the US administration on behalf right, of our right. clients. I mean, the Marshall Islands, which is our client, has an incredibly important relationship with the US, important for the Marshall Islands. It's actually also important for the US too, because for military reasons, the Marshalls mm -hmm. hosts 
important facilities for the United States. And so we would advise the, the marshals about their relationship with the US. The US posture inside the UNFCCC, as it's known, the UN climate process, is yet to be seen. There will be a price if the US resiles from Paris. I don't know what that will be, but China will be very unhappy about that, as mm -hmm. will be the Europeans. I mean, this isn't just a trivial thing for them. Uh, it is very, very serious. Enormous, enormous effort. Oh, gone specifically into the island states. I mean, you have 50 or 54 island states. Well, yeah, well, it depends on which island state. Yeah, I mean, the island least states half, were not wholly Half aligned. a dozen of them are, are in, in, you know, they see themselves in danger. Um, at, least, at least, at least, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's various groupings that came out during the negotiations that culminated in Paris. The island states was one. There's a Pacific island state grouping as well. There's a high ambition coalition. There's a coalition of the most vulnerable states to climate, which is a different group yeah, yet yeah. again. Uh, but it was the high ambition coalition that itself actually emerged as the primary caucus for momentum for high ambition, for a, a strong, robust outcome in Paris, which is what they achieved. I mean, the Paris Agreement, while it's by no means sufficient to stop uh, warming enough, it is much stronger than people anticipated. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because of the high ambition coalition. There are specific provisions in the Paris Agreement that would not have been there right, but right. for the high ambition coalition. So that's what, you know, that's what we do on that front. Somaliland, I have talked about, we aid them with their diplomacy, uh, which has the headline objective of them being recognized as an independent state. But there's also a host of things that they are doing diplomatically, engaging with the African Union. They've just declared an exclusive economic zone um, around the waters of Somaliland, which is, right, right, in our right. view, a very mm -hmm. strong signal, a very strong assertion of sovereignty over that territory. And so it's things like that that we do with Somaliland. Let me ask you, given that you're still involved uh, you know, with Syria, and you know, like you're still looking into that, do you have a vision yourself? I mean, if you were to be advising the administration, what should be the next step? Where do um, you go Syria? from here? Yeah. Well, it's what we discussed. I mean, yeah. I think you've got to hit Assad. And that's that's, that's one thing. But that in and of itself is not going to bring an end to the conflict. You hit Assad, well, you're teaching him a lesson. No, he probably not, would I mean, be more, more compromising. But then what? But then you force him to, he, you force it. What has been the history so far of all international attempts to negotiate an end to the war is that the regime has not engaged. You know, the Geneva 1 talks, the Geneva 2 talks. The I mean, literally, the Syrian delegation would come in and just talk a load of nonsense. They would not engage on the substance of the no, proposals that the, UN, the yeah. UN put in front of them. Yeah. Um, Brahimi, his successor, in, originally Kofi Annan. So if you don't have a party that's not willing even to engage, you don't have any possibility of a deal. So, you know, obviously there's multiple negotiations to be had. You also need to get the outside powers to agree to it too. Uh, but if you've got the regime to engage and accept a transition, then that is the, the core of it. I mean, there's a whole host of appallingly difficult questions. But you're going to have to, after that, even for that to happen, I think you're going to need to convince Russia and Iran to take the kind of steps necessary to bring this about. Russia was, Russia was ready yeah. to... I mean, the so, talk was at the time at Geneva too that Russia was trying to persuade Assad to engage. I mean, Russia doesn't want this war to continue indefinitely. It's enormously expensive for them apart from anything else. 
This is this is true, but had they, I don't think they put their foot down. Russia did not put its foot down and say. Well, the leverage is we will withdraw yeah. uh, military but support. Have, if but you, they haven't. But done. They haven't. They haven't. They, haven't pulled, they have not pulled that. That's lever. right, and they do not want to leave their presence in no. Syria, no. their naval base, and others. And now they are even more entrenched. So you have to have Russia on your side, and then you have to have Iran on your side. Yeah. That is to convince them because they even more than Russia will not relinquish their interest in Syria well, as, long will as, Russia Ahmad, will. as long as Assad is. I think if you get Russia on the side, then you've got the Iranians will fall into place. I'm not, I mean, I mean they, they have to maintain their, some kind yeah. of influence, some kind of presence of sort in Syria. Mm. I do not believe that uh, Iran will ever want to completely exit and, and relinquish its interest in Syria. That's not going to happen. No. Because for them, for them, it's 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 a control over you know from the Mediterranean. That's been saying this all along, Mediterranean to to the Gulf. Yeah, but I, what I'm saying is that diplomatically, then they would not be able to stand alone against a deal. This this Russia is true, but they, they have but they can be still the spoiler forever. Yeah. That's 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 the strength that Iran has today. Is that they they, be, they can continue to be the spoiler. Yeah, and I not allow a deal to actually hold. Yeah. And because they, they have to be satisfied. That's how mm -hmm. I see it. So the focus ought to be, so now that the United States actually is charging, you know, putting Iran on notice, so to speak, mm -hmm. we don't know the relationship between uh, really uh, Trump and Assad. I think that's, uh, it's putting the solution in Syria either furthermore in the distance rather than... Oh yeah, it's pretty, but it's pretty bleak right now. It's a bleak. But I, th I think, you know, again, I would say from the point of view of the Syrians we work with, this is not complicated. There is one primary objective which nobody even talks about, which is stopping the bombing. Yeah, yeah. And by far the biggest killers of civilians in Syria today are the, and long has been, the regime and their Russian allies. Yeah, I, and no, no, if think we think about that, yeah. rather than thinking about the complications of an overall political No, no, I agree. I mean, that should, has to stop. And you I do think, that, yeah, then things start to change. But unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't heard anything from this administration yet. But I think that is a, should be the priority. Of course. Stop these bombing. And by bombing is one way. By well, we think it should be the primary goal of the negotiation. Yeah. That should be the first order of business. And if everybody started saying that, then may, maybe we start making progress. Well, we have to see. We solved the problem of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I don't conflict. think we did. Yeah, we, we, did. Saw, we almost solved We re-described <laughs> these problems. <laughs> uh, this Syrian situation. But I really think in summary, uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong, and I think on Syria we both agree, the first step has to be sending a clear message to Assad that yeah. this is no longer acceptable. Yeah. I think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the message has to be clear. I think there, all a clear message to Bibi Netanyahu that yeah. this is no longer this acceptable. No longer it's the same strategy for both of them, yeah. frankly. And that's, that may <laughs> not be as easy to no. attain under this administration. No. And so we're going to have to wait until he de hopefully departs well, the scene. Hopefully some Maybe investigating be, judge will I hope so. be his nemesis. I hope, I hope yeah. that's it. And, 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 and uh, as far as Abbas is concerned, well, it's a question of time, unfortunately. So there's, there's, as far as that conflict, I, can, I see it's going to go on for some time. So far, the international community, the United Nations, all these uh, conferences in Paris, I don't think they're going to yield anything. They will not change the dynamics of the conflict, the Palestinians, as far as I can see.
I are, think it's important steps though towards Israel's international diplomatic isolation, as was the settlements resolution in the UN Security Council. I mean, that was the first big resolution on Israel-Palestine for decades, decades. This is that said true. something it's new and clear and emphatic. And the fact that the Paris Conference, Paris, that's France. You know, there's not they're not a joke country. All the Europeans showed up to that. The Brits, you know, were diffident. Americans and Israelis, of course, but didn't. Remember, but you know, remember, <clears throat> these type of conferences, resolution have been passed in the past so many times. There is no, no, no I've not seen. There's not no seen. enforcement. United well, Nations not enforcement. today cannot of not. enforce anything. No, but what you're seeing is growing international isolation. This is a true of Israel, but and there will be consequences for that. The EU, for instance, is making much more concrete steps to make it very difficult for Israel to export goods from the occupied territories, you know, to label those goods and to exclude them from the EU-Israel trade arrangements. For instance, that's a concrete example of how Israel's isolation has real effects. And the other thing we haven't talked about is BDS, of course. Yeah, but, no, I mean, I, I've been in you know, Brussels in Europe so many times, and you know, they are really not They don't want to talk about BDS, who most of them. Who don't? The countries, because they feel Britain today is openly say this is not out of, it has to be out no, of the no, question. No, I'm not it's that interested in what the government say. I know perfectly well that they're opposed to BDS, well, but I think you will see a growing movement towards BDS around the world. The fact that we're talking about it is dramatically different from ten years ago. Yes, yes, but to get this to a real maturity, to a really impact on Israel, to begin to put that kind of pressure to change. You're going to need a different. I told. I remember. I don't know. I don't think there is an exact science of when this has the sufficient pressure. You know, obviously, I would like to see much more international pressure on Israel to do a deal to get out of the occupied territories. But I don't know what, exactly what that pressure would amount to. Maybe it's a phone call from an American president. Maybe it's an international conference. Maybe it's a growing popular BDS movement. Maybe it's a combination of all of those things. Maybe it's a change of government. I do know that. When you have static situations, even ones that look hopeless, they do change. Eventually, they, they, they change. will be changed. This will come to an end. And Israel knows one thing. They know one thing, that they will not have normalization with the rest of the world until this ends. And that is a very important kind of, almost like a, a negative fact. I remember farmers in what was Rhodesia telling me that the, the main consequence of sanctions on Rhodesia to end white minority rule was that you know the economic effects didn't bother them that much they were self-sufficient but the primary psychological effect was that they knew it couldn't last they knew it couldn't last yes, and israel but, must know that but they know that sanction can hurt but they, if you look at the recent development last two three four years as a matter of fact israel is expanding its relations and economic and trade with many countries a lot more than before mm -hmm. The Gulf states are now, now cooperating with Israel on a number of levels because of Iran. So Israel, this government, does not feel the pressure. In fact, the opposite. Mm. They feel that not notwithstanding what's happening with the settlement, settlers, expansion, all of that, the world really doesn't give a hoot about it because they have an interest in Israel. They're buying stuff from Israel that they cannot get elsewhere, at least not as cheap and not as quickly, not as good, technologically, technologically speaking. The Arab, the Gulf states need desperately Israel's support, intelligence, and otherwise in dealing mm -hmm. with Iran. So they do not feel that punch. They do not feel that kind of pressure. 
So I think in that pressure, that is sanction, threats will not work. You need a change of leadership in this. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. That's, that's going to have to be. I don't know what the route the is. The prerequisite. I'm not saying there's only one route to yeah, change. Yeah, you I need mean, more. You need a combination course. of things to happen in order for the Israelis to change the direction. That's how I see it. Sure. Yeah. So we solved that now, so we have no problem anymore. Well, you solved it. I didn't. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. It was fun, you know. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you for yeah. uh, inviting me to discuss this with you. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.